Colossians 1 verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. Well, let me pray before we think about that passage together. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we ask this morning that as your word is read and preached, you would give us alert minds and attentive, receptive hearts that we would hear you speak and would so love you more. We ask all of this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are few things that will steal away Christmas cheer more quickly than festive fraud. It can be relatively small scale. The disappointment as the toy that looked life-sized when you ordered it on Amazon actually fits into your pocket when it arrives. I think many of us have been there. Or it can be much more serious. The sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach as you realize that the salesman wasn't who he claimed to be or that your money has gone to the wrong account, never to be seen again. It can be a devastating thing, especially at this time of year. And uh, Christmas-based fraud is on the rise, apparently. There's a cheerful thought for us all. And because lots of us are doing our shopping online, which causes or brings greater risk, apparently. So you might have noticed that banks now issue warnings about how to safeguard yourself against online fraud at Christmas time. So before they let you transfer cash to anyone, you have to make through your way through a fraud warning gauntlet. And it starts to make you doubt everything. I remember a couple of years ago sending my brother some money uh, to pay him back for a joint Christmas present we'd bought for someone else. Um, and I was on the phone to him while I was making the transfer. But before I could send it, the bank's website had issued so many warnings about the reason for the transfer, the real reason for the transfer, whether I'd been compelled to make the transfer, if that really was my name. I genuinely started to wonder, not a word of a lie, whether it really was my brother on the other end of the phone. 
the thought flashed through my mind that a sophisticated crime syndicate had somehow intercepted the line and was impersonating my brother so they could con me out of 13 quid. <clears throat> well, this morning, our last Sunday morning before Christmas, the last Sunday of Advent, we're thinking about Christmas through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. And the reason that I just had us thinking about festive fraud is that in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, he reminds them of the incarnation, of God becoming flesh, and he does that as a safeguard against fraud. Not financial fraud, but spiritual fraud. Let me show you what I mean. If you just uh, have your Bible open in front of you again, if you've closed it at 983, and if you look down to chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, Paul gives the Colossians a hint as to why he's writing this letter to them. Chapter 2, verse 4, he writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. At least part of the reason that Paul's writing to the Colossians is to make sure that they aren't deceived, they aren't conned. And what exactly is it that they're at risk of being deceived by? Well, if you could flip over the page, I won't have you jumping around too much this morning, I promise, but if you could just flip over the page to chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul writes this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. There were people in Colossae who were trying to convince Christians, a church in Colossae, that their faith in the good news of Jesus wasn't enough on its own, that they needed something more. And they were going about that in two ways. Firstly, you'll see in in verse 18 there, some people were insisting that real Christian fullness, that living the best Christian life now, involved super spiritual experiences. Trusting in Jesus is, is, well, it's good as far as it takes you, but if you really want to experience fullness as a Christian, come and worship with us. We have visions. We worship angels. It doesn't get any better than that. Come on. And secondly, some people were insisting in verse 18 on asceticism, which is just a kind of uh, religious discipline. And I guess it might have gone something like this. You can't be sure that you're a real, true Christian. You can't be sure that you're really acceptable to God unless you do what we do. Avoid these foods, observe these festivals, behave this way, then you can be certain, then you can be sure that God is going to accept you. Now, I received an email a few months ago from my long-lost cousin, which was really nice. Um, He also happened to be a Nigerian prince, uh, which was a bit of a surprise, seeing as all of my family are from Ayrshire. And, and, And all he was asking from me is that I would send him 200 quid so that he could process the inheritance, which apparently I'd just come into, which was very exciting. That kind of fraud, I guess many of us have experienced it, is relatively easy to spot. But the fraud that the Colossians were facing wasn't like that. Paul says the arguments sounded plausible. 
They were persuasive. And actually, when we take a moment to think about our own experience, we might be able to understand quite how persuasive they were. For example, maybe you are a Christian, maybe you have been for a while, and yet you're not sure that you're experiencing the whole turkey dinner, spiritually speaking. Because other Christians in other churches seem to have something extra, something more dramatic, exciting spiritual experiences, an X factor, and it feels like you're missing out. You need something more. Or another example, maybe you are a Christian, maybe even a really keen Christian, and you know in your head that the only way you can be right before a holy God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You know that in your head, but it doesn't always feel like it in your heart. You don't feel particularly certain about how you stand before God. And so there's something quite attractive about doing stuff that will make sure he accepts you, isn't there? Maybe it isn't observing food laws, maybe it isn't religious festivals, maybe it's just a general Christian morality, or maybe one a bit closer to home, maybe it's taking one step forward in evangelism. Because then you'll know he really accepts you. You need something more. Last example. Maybe you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian at all. And at least one of the reasons you don't find Christianity persuasive is that if it really was true, it would look a lot more powerful than it does. And if anything, Christmas just kind of typifies that, doesn't it? Hearing about the baby in the manger is a nostalgic tonic during the long winter months. But it's of no more relevance to your life than a school nativity play. You couldn't possibly stake your life on Jesus. If you were really going to be convinced by Christianity, you would need something else, something more. Well, if you can see anything of yourself in any of those examples, if you think that Jesus on his own isn't quite enough, Paul would ask you to consider whether you've really understood the incarnation. Now, you might have noticed there are no stables, no mangers, no wise men in Paul's argument. And that's because he isn't quite so concerned about the how of the incarnation, how it happened. Instead, he spends his time thinking firstly about the who of the incarnation in verses 15 to 20. Who was it that arrived at Christmas time? And then secondly, he reflects on the why of the incarnation, verses 20 to 22. Why was it that God designed to become a flesh and blood human being? Let's look at what Paul says in a bit more detail. In verses 15 to 20, there are two big headlines. You'll see those both on the service sheets, um, which are tucked inside your um, prayer diaries, I think. If you don't think you've got one, they may well still be inside your Bible. Um, so the first of the headings on your service sheet is verses 15 to, 20, uh, sorry, 15 to 17, where Paul tells the Colossians that Jesus is supreme over all creation. Just look down at those verses again with me. Verse 15. Paul t reminds the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
that if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. He continues, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created being. He can't be because verse 16, nothing was made that was made without him. All Paul is doing is saying that Jesus, as firstborn over all creation, is heir to everything the Father has. Jesus is on an equal footing with God the Father. And he explains that further from verse 16. Just read that with me. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now just have a think about that list for a moment and try and think of something that falls out with the scope of Jesus' activity in creation. So there's things in heaven, check. Things in earth, check. Visible things, invisible things, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. The point is that the whole created order owes its existence to Jesus Christ. And not only that, but without Jesus, it would all fall apart. Verse 17, in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. There is nothing in this world, no square inch of the created order that's either more important than him or that could even exist unless he sustained it. That's the first point on Jesus' CV, if you like. He is supreme over everything in creation. Now, that's a big deal. But if that wasn't enough, Paul says that Jesus isn't just supreme over everything in creation. He's supreme over a new creation. That's our second point this morning, verses 18 to 20. Now, as you read through these verses from 15 to 23, verse 18 looks like a bit of an anticlimax in Jesus' CV, doesn't it? So we've just had that he's head of all creation. Nothing was made that has been made without him. That's a big deal. But then verse 18, a massive change of gear. He is the head of the church. Now, the church looks small and weak, doesn't it? Being the head of the church doesn't look like that big a deal. It's like being the CEO of a struggling charity. Not particularly impressive. But in Paul's argument, this is a step up from what he's just been saying. Because the church, God's people, is the first fruits, is a forerunner of a new and eternal creation. How do we know that's what he's talking about? Well, just look on to verse 20. Paul says that through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, if you were here last Sunday morning, we thought about Isaiah's famous prophecy of peace on earth, the promise of an end to all wars and hostility between people. And it's a wonderful promise, and it's a wonderful, wonderful hope, isn't it? The need for reconciliation between people is really obvious. But just take a moment to ask yourself the question, even if people stopped warring with one another, 
Even if, as John Lennon sang, war is over, if you want it, if all of that happened, would the world be a perfect place? Would the world be a perfect place? I think we'd have to answer no. Take, for example, natural disasters. Seen a fair few of those over the past year. 900 people killed by a typhoon in Mozambique and Zimbabwe in March this year. Terrible fires currently raging across New South Wales and Australia have killed eight and looking like they're threatening others. World peace would be wonderful. It really would be wonderful. But that on its own is not quite enough to make everything right in the world. Even the planet we live on is disordered. Our own experience when we turn on the news tells us as much. And the Bible tells us why. The Bible says that that disorder is the result of humanity's rebellion against our maker back in the garden, that it caused a fracture, that the earth itself is cursed. And so what Paul is pointing forward to is a new creation where all of that is undone where all things will be reconciled. Everything that's fractured and broken in our world will be put right. And what he's saying about that new creation, what's remarkable is that even in that new creation where everything is made new, Jesus still is and will be supreme. He is before all things. He is preeminent, says Paul. So far, we've had two big headlines on Jesus' CV. Firstly, he is supreme over all creation. The whole created order owes its existence to Jesus. It was made through him and for him. It's sustained by him. And secondly, he is supreme over a new creation. Now, that's all very interesting. <clears throat> but what does it have to do with Christmas? I said that it did, didn't I? What does it have to do with Christmas? Well, Paul doesn't, doesn't just remind the Colossians of how great Jesus is, though he does that. He reminds them that all of that incomparable greatness came to dwell in flesh and blood. Verse 19, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell he reminds them of the who of the incarnation. That the baby in the manger we'll be thinking of over the next few days is supreme over creation and a new creation. Now, why should any of that matter to the Colossians? Well, remember their problem. They're at risk of being persuaded, of being conned, that their Christian experience was lacking somehow angel worship and visions seemed far more impressive, far more attractive than what they had. And yet Paul is showing them that they worship a Jesus who is supreme over all creation, a Jesus who is and will be supreme over a new creation, all of which means that when they have Jesus, they're missing out on nothing. Now, Paul's aim is that that should stave off any sense that the Colossians are missing out. 
And I think it should do the same for us too. Maybe you have friends who you think of as being pretty spiritual, maybe around other Christian churches, and they seem to have lots of wonderful, spectacular-sounding spiritual experiences, and it all makes you wonder whether you're missing out in the Christian life, maybe even whether you're getting the real thing. Well, says Paul, if you are a Christian, this is what you get when you stick with Jesus, or rather, this is who you get when you stick with Jesus. The Jesus who is supreme over all creation, the Jesus who is and will be supreme over a new creation, and the Jesus who stepped into that creation. If you're following the Jesus of Colossians 1, then no matter what anyone else says they're experiencing on top of that, even if angels are showing up in their worship services, Do not be deceived. You haven't been sold short. Or maybe you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian at all. Because if it really was true, there would have to be more to it, wouldn't there? Jesus on his own isn't possibly enough to stake my life on. And as I mentioned before, it might be that the Christmas story that you hear year after year just kind of perpetuates that thought. It's nice, it's nostalgic, it's warming, but the baby in the manger, well, he's ultimately an irrelevance. Now, of course, it's true that you could hardly find anything weaker and more fragile than a baby. But Paul shows that the incarnation isn't just the stuff of Christmas cards or school nativity plays. It's the arrival of the powerful, creative, supreme over creation and new creation Jesus. It's the fullness of God himself taking on human flesh. So if you've dismissed the Christian faith because you think that there would have to be more to it if it was really going to be worth your time, don't be deceived. You would not be missing out to follow this Jesus. Now, all of that might have been enough to persuade the Colossians that they didn't need a spiritual upgrade. They weren't missing out on spiritual experiences like visions and angel worship. But remember, there was another problem that they were facing of asceticism. That was the other persuasive-sounding argument, that Jesus is fine up to a certain point, but to be really sure that you're acceptable to God, that you're, you're doing the right thing, you need to add something extra. Religious duty and discipline. Well, Jesus has told the Colossians about the who of the incarnation in verses 15 to 20, and he then addresses asceticism in verses 20 to 22 by telling them about the why of the incarnation, why it was that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Let's think about that under our third heading this morning. Jesus is the savior of humanity. So, so far, we've seen that Jesus has a pretty impressive CV. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. But then just look down to verse 21 and notice who he turns his attention to. And you. This time, he doesn't quite so much give a CV as a biography. He reminds the Colossians of who they once were, 
and of who they are now. Firstly, who they were. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. They were alienated. They were separated from God. They were hostile towards him, opposed to him, and they were doing evil deeds. That's who they once were. But it isn't who they are anymore, says Paul, verse 22. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So instead of hostility, they're now reconciled to God. Instead of alienation or separation, they're now acceptable before him, presentable. And instead of evil deeds, they're now characterized by holiness and blamelessness before God. There's been a radical transformation in who the Colossians are. Why is it that Paul tells them all of that or reminds them of all of that? We'll just have a quick scan through verses 21 and 22 and try and pick out what it was that the Colossians contributed to all of that. Have a look. What did they bring to the table? Answer, absolutely nothing. In fact, all they brought was hostility, alienation, and evil deeds. They are acceptable to God only because of what Jesus did at the cross. Verse 22, he reconciled them in his body of flesh by his death. Nothing to do with what they've done and all because of Jesus. So verses 15 to 20 tell us who arrived in Bethlehem that first Christmas time, the who of the incarnation. Verses 20 to 22 tell us the why of the incarnation, why it was that God took on flesh and blood. He took on blood, verse 20, which was shed on a cross to reconcile all things to himself, guaranteeing a new reordered world. He took on flesh, verse 22, that that flesh could be nailed to a cross to save people from hostility and alienation from God to blamelessness and relationship with him. That's the Colossian biography. And if you're a Christian, that's your biography. Now, can you see how that undermines the idea that you need to add anything to Jesus to be acceptable before God? It's all been paid for. Jesus has done it. No need to add anything else. No need to top it up with white-knuckled religion. It's all done. Now, none of that's to say that how you live doesn't matter. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul encourages the Colossians to bear fruit in every good work. But that fruit is not what makes you acceptable before God. Only Jesus can and has done that. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that gives you tremendous assurance of your standing before God. You are right with him. You are blameless and holy in his sight, all because of the flesh and blood of Jesus. But while it gives Christians assurance of their standing before God, 
If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian this morning, it might do just the opposite. Because the hostility and the alienation towards God that Paul talks about is the default position of every human heart. We are opposed to God. We have rejected him. And one day, the Bible tells us that that alienation will be permanent because of that rejection. And that's why the incarnation really matters. It's why Jesus coming in flesh and blood really counts. It happened for a reason. We'll sing of that reason in a few moments' time. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, and you can finish it in your head, God and sinners reconciled. The newborn king came in flesh and blood to reconcile God and sinners. Sinners like you and me. Don't be deceived into thinking that the baby, the baby never got any further than the manger. That flesh and blood baby would be the saviour on the cross. Trust in him and that alienation between you and that creator will be over forever. And that new creation described in Colossians 1 will be yours. That's the why of the incarnation. Jesus is the saviour of humanity. So, Jesus is supreme over all creation. Jesus is supreme over the new creation. And Jesus is the saviour of humanity. But, there's a condition. I wonder if you noticed it. It's in one tiny word, in verse 23. Just look on, I'll read in from verse 22. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul's reminded the Colossians of how amazing and supreme Jesus is. He's reminded them of what Jesus has done, reconciling them to God. But there is an if. You can only be sure that all of that is yours, that all of that fullness of Christian experience is yours if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so Paul's charged to the Colossians and his charge to us could be summed up in three words. Stick with Jesus. No matter what else might be dangled in front of you by spiritual con men or dangled in front of you by your own heart, however convincing it sounds, Paul says Jesus is so much better. Stick with him. But they say that if I hang around with them and join in their worship services, I'll experience real spiritual power. Well, says Paul, Jesus is supreme over creation and new creation. There isn't anything more powerful than him. Stick with him. But they say that if I join in with their religious festival or follow their food laws or behave like them or take one step forward in evangelism, then I'll be certain that I'm acceptable before God. 
Well, says Paul, Jesus saved you from hostility to reconciliation, from alienation to presentability, from evil deeds to holy and blameless. You don't need anything else to be certain. Jesus has done it. So stick with him. And just as he said to the Colossians, so he says to us, whatever kind of spiritual experience you're searching for, wherever you might look for certainty and assurance, look to the incarnation, the who of the incarnation, who came that first Christmas time, the Jesus who is supreme over creation and new creation, the why of the incarnation, why did God take on flesh and blood so that blood could be shed and flesh could be nailed to a cross to make you right with God and to remake this disordered world. Whatever anyone else dangles in front of you, even if it's from the pit of your own heart, don't be deceived. Jesus is so, so much better.